Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Input 2. I am your host, Emily Rubin, and I actually have a new person with me today, and that person is... I'm Lauren DeLorenzo. You sound a little hesitant. <laughs> I know, we're very scary. <laughs> and then I have Jeremy again. We're so excited. <laughs> Say your full name, though. Like, uh, yeah, Jeremy Rogers. I don't know if they know right you that here. well. Don't get cocky over here. All right, so today we're going to get... It's a little bit of an interesting and controversial topic, so I do want to give a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, an actual rape case that happened, and... The film that we're talking about also has scenarios of rape in it. So if that is something that you are uncomfortable with, that is completely valid and you should probably turn off the podcast. We won't do any we won't talk about anything in graphic detail, but I do feel like it is appropriate to give that disclaimer in this case. With that in mind, we're going to move forward. We're going to talk about the infamous director, Roman Polanski. And more specifically, we're going to look at one of his films, Repulsion, which I'm not sure too many young people have watched in comparison to other films he's made, like Chinatown. I don't know. I don't think Mm. it's that mainstream of a film. But here we are being edgy, I guess. (laughs) So Repulsion, just to give a little background, it was released on October 3rd in 1965 and actually debuted at the USA Canes Film Festival. But it is not an American film. This one was actually made abroad in the UK. And it's important to note that Roman Polanski is one of the few directors actually referred to as like an international director. He makes films in Poland, Britain, France, the U.S. He's all over the place. Like, I think everyone knows who Roman Polanski is. Fair? Yeah. <laughs> if they don't, they should. You probably should for one reason or another, which we'll, we'll get into. Um but if you don't know Polanski's work, he he made Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby, The Pianist, The Tenet. He has a wide array of work. He's done a bunch of short films in his earlier days, but the big ones you've probably at least heard of. Uh, so Repulsion was written by Gerard Branch and Polanski in 17 days, and they would go on to collaborate on eight other films. So I guess good job for them. <laughs> I, I read an article from... Uh, Jeremy Carr with Senses of Cinema, and he was talking about Roman Polanski and just like him as a director. This was his first film made in English. Usually all of his other films were in, you know, French or Polish. This is the first one that's actually all in English. And when they were shopping this film around, they heard about the Compton Group. And the Compton Group is a British studio known for exploitation and softcore porn. Um, And they were seeking horror films. So I guess... That's where they decided to uh, put this movie. So so there's a primer for those of you who have not <laughs> seen Repulsion of what kind of thing you might be able to expect going in. It's a little bit repulsive. You did it. I was waiting for someone to say it. It was going to happen. <laughs> <Make them> <laughs> well, Repulsion is actually interesting because it's part of a trilogy called the Apartment Trilogy. And basically, I think it's safe to say points using a tour. And so he has a lot of different... Uh, themes and just filmmaking, like aesthetic aspects of filmmaking that kind of bleed into other films. And the Apartment Trilogy is Repulsion, The Tenant, and Rosemary's Baby. And basically, they all center around themes of like claustrophobia and confinement. That's something that you'll see in a lot of his films. He's, He's very into that type of thing. And especially locations like apartments that are just really dilapidated and kind of gross. 
little weirdo. <laughs> Freak. Yeah. <laughs> In his autobiography, Roman Polanski stated of all of his films, Repulsion is the shoddiest, technically well below the standard I try to achieve. This is not a film that he's necessarily proud of. Which, can I say something about that? Of course. That is such a filmmaker type of statement. Like, oh, I made this. It's one of the, the greatest films ever made. Blah, blah, but it's not my best. You know, like that sort of, I don't, uh, he doesn't have, he doesn't speak like that. But I don't know. It just came across very, yep. I don't know. I, I'm just kind of suspect of anything that Roman Polanski is proud of, film or <laughs> yeah. not. So, you know, take whatever he says with a grain of salt. For, I believe the reason that he's not completely satisfied with this film is that the technical level isn't where he wanted his film to be. Like, mm-hmm. when you look at Chinatown, you can look at it and go, wow, beautiful, I guess. But with this one, it's very... They made it for about $3,000 budget. At least that's what Roman Polanski says, uh, and that's what people are just kind of taking. Um, the film looks like it, though. It seems like a reasonable amount. It's just kind of one location, very few practical effects, so... I can see why he's not proud of the technical level, but that is such a filmmaker thing to do. Like, <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to bring him down a peg before we bring him down a peg a lot more. Oh, you please. Know? I, think okay. mm-hmm. I think it's okay. I think it's okay to like just beat on this guy, but okay. not actually, because that would be assault. <laughs> anyway, so moving on to the box office, I do want to say that for some reason, this was difficult to find. I, I'm i not entirely sure what the actual no box office. No one knows. It's a box of lies. So I went with Wikipedia, and again, I couldn't confirm this, but apparently it made $1,122,166. It's a very specific amount. Um, <laughs> good for him, I guess. Uh, so if that number is correct, then it did do fairly well. I'm actually, that seems a little high for me, considering that this does seem less, uh, like, like it's not really what you'd think of a box office hit film that no. makes in the money. And especially since it released through a film festival, or at least was introduced to people through a film festival, it just seems odd. I don't know how they're calculating that, like DVD sales or like... Perhaps. Maybe it's like accumulated over time. I'm not I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, so apparently it made money. So here there you go. The critical re- reception though, we can say for a fact, was very well received. And on Rotten Tomatoes it has a one hundred percent critical score and an eighty six percent audience score, so pretty high on both fronts. And I pulled a quote from Jonathan Rosenbaum. And he, he's with the Chicago Reader, and he said, Roman Polanski's first film in English in 1965 is still his scariest and most disturbing, not only for its ev- evocations of sexual panic, but also because his masterful employment of sound puts the audience's imagination to work in numerous ways. And the reason I pulled this one is because this is one of the only instances I've seen online of people talking casually about the sound element of the film. And Lauren, you and I were in a film history class that was pretty much centered around sound. And that's kind of, well, that's how I was introduced to this film. I don't know about you. But uh, sound in this film is horrifying. It's terrifying. (laughs) uh, I think that's something that it does very well. Even if you don't like the film, I think it accomplishes uh, making you feel uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. I'm just glad to see that mentioned. Uh, We'll get into it a little more, but... I just thought that was interesting. Like A-plus sound work, somehow Roman Polanski finds ways to make you uncomfortable throughout almost the entire duration of the film just with the sound. 
and after because reading through news articles with his picture makes me uncomfortable. So, <laughs> right, exactly. After you watch the film and you know about right. Polanski, the sounds just never stop, <laughs> never stop in your head. Oh no. This is getting dark. <laughs> this is going to be a dark episode. <laughs> I also wanted to pull this quote because um, I do think from all the Polanski films I've seen, this is the most horrific. I think this one just has such a graphic amount of violence. And I think knowing what Polanski's done, um, it's just such an uncomfortable watch seeing the violence towards women shown in the film and just the blatant invasion of space in this film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think there's because also there's not much dialogue at all, and no. I think be, like the way he fills that with sound and images of horror and um, sexual violence is it's just terrifying. And because there's no sort of guiding voice or character there to talk you through it, you just have the main character Carol who just sort of experiences it all. There's nothing to really hold on to and tell you that this is this movie is going to be okay. Like this is a character who is actively trying to work through their issues yeah and you're stuck with this character the entire time and it is a slow burning film like it's not like you have some action to break that up it is you're watching her do the most mundane things the entire film but oh sorry go ahead yeah i mean the entire time we're just watching her apartment fall into further and further disrepair with food being left out mm-hmm. uh, it's just not not a pleasant thing to watch potatoes sprout, you know, little tubes. <laughs> yeah. I think I think one of the most interesting parts is it's so repetitive in the images that it shows you. It's very deliberate. Like this is the um, decaying meat at the very beginning and then we go through this set of images and we come back to the decaying meat and it's even worse and it's sort of a slow decay and a slow yeah. descent into this yeah. um, madness. Definitely agree. I I personally think it's one of his, I think it's the worst one for me. It's hard to watch and I wouldn't call it an enjoyable experience on any front. But definitely interesting. It is interesting. And that's why we're going to talk about what the film is actually about. So you two, go ahead, take it. What's this film about? I'll say, I'll jump off of what we were just talking about with the food and say that that serves as an interesting metaphor because obviously the food is left out and it rots and our main character's mental deterioration throughout the film kind of mirrors that of the food. But I think we can take that a step further and say that Polanski kind of sees his young, attractive female subject as something like food, something that is to be consumed. Yeah. Oh, that's a, like that's that v- a good metaphor, but I'm not I'm not growing at the metaphor. I'm yeah. It's I agree. That's disgusting. That's horrible. <laughs> like that's kind of the viewpoint that we get watching the film is just seeing this sort of viewpoint put onto women throughout. Or she's like the thing that is like decaying. Like she's viewed as meat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree. But yeah, so she's we're watching her go through this sort of mental deterioration. So it's centering on Carol, the main character, and she is in an apartment um, with her sister and her sister is having an affair with a married man. Um, Meanwhile, Carol is sort of scared of like men who are around her. We see um, she has a suitor who um, every time he approaches her, she sort of flinches and backs away um, and it sort of just takes off from there. 
Can I we? Mean, the guy just doesn't take it. Yeah, I was about no, to, he doesn't. Can we talk about him really quick? <laughs> so this, the entire, the entirety of the film, there's this guy, and he, we can tell he's obviously trying to get Carol's attention, but she's not at all interested, and it's very obvious. And there's a specific point in the film where he literally kicks in the door after she's been like ignoring everything. Not that that would matter. Like even if she hadn't been ignoring him, I don't know why we're. Kicking in a door. No. She literally <laughs> runs away. He's, they're in a car at one point. Yeah. She, he leans over to like try and kiss her. She's like, nah, nah, backs off. Does it again. Nah, nah, backs off. At one point, she literally jumps out of the car and runs away from him like while they're sitting in traffic. That's that's a bit of a signal, don't you think? I it's I think he it's just... more than a signal. It's like <laughs> blatant rejection. Yeah. Right I... before that, he accosts her on the street and right. he just goes... Have you been playing hard to get? Yeah. It's like, yes, <laughs> she has. Take a hint, been buddy. been playing get away from me. Yeah. There's a scene, this might be a weird comparison, in On the Waterfront, where Marlon Brando's character, <laughs> he's trying to get to this girl, and she's on the other side, and she's like, go away. So he starts kicking in the door, <laughs> and he comes in, and he passionately kisses her. Ugh. And you know... Disgustingly Marlon Brando thing to Exactly. Do. <laughs> and that's all I can think about with the scene, but it makes me wonder... Well, in high school, when I watched that uh, in a film class, there was one girl that was like, I think it's romantic. And all of us were like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, so, no. <laughs> I have a point, I promise. But I went and I checked online. I was reading comments, and a lot of women seemed to agree with that. So I wonder if in any other genre of film, like... I. Are we supposed to take him as intimidating? I guess even in this genre, are we supposed to be like, oh, this is just him being a suitor and she shouldn't have reacted in that way because that's horrifying. That is horrifying. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I think we're supposed to, I think that's the old way of thinking. And I think that old way of thinking is still around today, but it's not obviously like it's not as prevalent. But we still see it. I hate it. If you ever watch, like, Zorro, I mean, well, Zorro is a bit better, but movies of that sort. Harrison Ford movies from the 80s. Just watch those (laughs) and you'll see a reluctant female that he just kind of imposes his affections onto. And it's just kind of framed as good, romantic, heroic, macho. And just to be very clear for anyone listening, it's not. I no. think we can all no. agree. So please <laughs> rethink immediately if that's how you pursue anybody. But I bring this specific instance up because it's the first time where things start to really escalate in the film because Carol ends up killing the suitor when he comes in. She just I think it's a candlestick is what she grabbed and she just beats him. And I, I hate to laugh, but... Uh, You're kind of cheering for her at that point. Like, I, just because it's a movie, you know, not in real life, but... I mean, think of the position she's in, like... He's not going to leave. Like, no. If she, she's, he's, it's very apparent he's going to pursue her no matter what. So I'm not, okay, I'm not saying we should have murdered him. No, but she's <laughs> no, so terrified of them. And then it's kind of like, I think the reason why I was kind of like, yeah, I was like, get over your fear, you know? Like, she's finally <laughs> overcoming. Like, not in the best way, but <laughs> she got there. Oh, uh, she got there by killing somebody else later, I guess. I th- well, okay, so this instance is very different. Um, in this case, it is blatant self-defense, or at least I think it's, I think it's portrayed that way pretty obviously. I, could I, am I wrong? No, I would, I would agree. Yeah, no, it definitely reads as much more attacky. 
Um, so essentially, after Carol's sister leaves, she was supposed to pay the rent to the landlord, and she didn't because the entire time her sister's away, she just kind of starts becoming incredibly reclusive, and she starts her mental health starts deteriorating. She's very obviously not functioning very well on her own. So she forgets to deliver the rent, and the landlord comes over, and he's very creepy about it. Um, for immediately, we're the audience is clued into what's happening. He's making a pass at her. He comments on what she's wearing. And then he blatantly tells her, you don't have to pay the rent if you sleep with me. And she is completely against that. And he still pursues and she stabs him multiple times and very violently. Uh, so this case is very obviously a self-defense scenario. However, uh, that's not where the horror of the situation comes in, other than the attack, which is horrific. Uh, the horror is that she just leaves the body there. It's just kind of decaying. She covers it with the couch. and Yeah, she's so far gone at that point. It's just like, whatever. She's, like, she's just mean, living she there. She had taken the guy who bust through the door after she killed him. She just kind of put him in the already full bathtub and just kind of left him there. Oh, yeah. We, so, we have uh, two bodies in that <laughs> apartment. So, I mean, at Yay. this point, I... I don't see it as much of an escalation so much as, oh, it's, now she's just not moving the body. It, uh, she just kind of lets it be where he fell and then just yeah. kind of turns the couch over on top of him. That's fair. I only say escalation because there's a point after she stabs him when she backs away and then she comes back and does it repeatedly over and over. Like, Self-defense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree. No, but the initial, yeah, I know what you mean. I think... I don't know. I probably would keep stabbing just to make sure I was safe. But it, it, she's very, there's like a almost smile like on her face. It's just very cold and she's not, it, yeah, she's, she's not, not there. Right. Yeah. Right. She's such a compelling actress. Like she's mm-hmm. so good. I think like all of the little movements that she does, constantly biting her nails or biting her hair or scratching, picking at her skin, like that's all the stuff. Like if you were sitting next to somebody in a class and they were like doing that, you'd be like, ugh. Right, like just stop. Like yeah. it wouldn't, you couldn't. It's not enough to blatantly say, "Hey, don't do that." But it's just, it gets on your nerves. It really stresses really well. me out. Like, yeah, and nothing. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, you're fine. Go on. Nothing like really seems to reach her eyes, like ever through the entire movie. Like there's a scene where she's laughing with one of her coworkers, um, and she's just like, it's. I don't know. It makes you feel weird because you just don't believe it. Anyway, that's how it was for me. Yeah, there's definitely not a lot of eye contact, not a lot of, like, connection with other people. It always seems like whenever she's interacting with someone else that there's just something off. They're on two different planes of communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, uh, the, ca- the, the Catherine, the actress Catherine Deneuve, she is incredible at this role. I just Even when, like you said, Lauren, when she's just supposed to be normal laughing with her friends there's just emptiness in everything she does and she just will randomly start like staring into space and no one can really connect with her in any way it's just she does such a great job at it I don't know if I've seen a performance like this one before so I think it's a really interesting portrayal and I'd say it's not even just all Catherine Deneuve, though she is amazing and incredible in her portrayal of Carol. The cinematography is unbelievable in this film. Like to go back to that uh, moment in the film where she's stabbing her attacker. 
right as he's down on the couch, he's been subdued. We cut to a shot of her feet as she backs away. And then I believe she then, that's when she decides to step forward again and Mm -hmm. keep on stabbing. And it's just that sort of disconnect or right before he decides to, you know, physically come on to her when he's still making it, you know, just this rhetorical innuendo. There's a scene, there's a shot where he's leaning over her and his upper half of his body completely blocks the camera's view of her face. But we still see the rest of her body sitting on the couch and we then get to see how he views her, which is just a body on the couch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Is it how It's kind of like how she's coming away in pieces. There's a lot of parts of where it's just sort of, this is her legs, she's walking. This is like, you know, the back of her head or, you know, just one side of her face. And I think it's really interesting how he frames her, like you were saying. Uh, I definitely think that the cinematography is an extension of the character. I don't think we would have had as powerful performance without it, especially with the tight close-ups that really like accent her eyes and facial expressions, and it really adds to it. So I think it's a really good point that you made, Jeremy, about the cinematography in regards to her character, because she is a great actress for this role, but it is a lot of the camera that is making her emotions, or even lack thereof, very apparent. And I also do want to say about the cinematography, um, the cinematography is incredible for this movie. (laughs) It got a BAFTA, um, and it was done by Gilbert Taylor, who did a fabulous job, especially considering this is a low-budget film. Um, There's not as much practical effects, but what he does do with the camera is very eerie in a lot of ways. Like, a lot of the pans and tilts are just so slow, and it's all for the slow burn but there's it's just uncomfortable a lot of the like framing is it's unnatural sometimes like heads will be cut off of a shot there's almost always something blocking half of the screen um again extreme close-ups are just (laughs) all over the place and it's such a tight shots and everything that you really feel the claustrophobia and it's just she feels so just trapped and isolated it's it's really well done but so uncomfortable yeah I think one last thing for me on <clears throat> sorry on um, cinematography is this is one of those films that feels more like you're watching a watercolor painting or something because mm. there's the same images repeated and they slightly change just yeah. ever so much and it's just I think that you know the fact that you said there's a lot of things that are being blocked and you never really they're always obscured you never really get the full picture of something it really heightens that effect and really does pull that in, make you feel isolated. I also think just the general stylistic choice, I mean, it looks like a noir film in a lot of ways. Uh, The shadows really make a lot of the shots just feel so lonely to me. Like, uh, it's just such an, and these are intense shadows. These aren't like your faded, kind of nice looking ones. These are like Really, the best way to just describe it is noir shadows. Everything just looks so ominous, and everything in the frame is dark most of the time. It's very little light, like natural light or anything. It's it's just kind of gross. Yeah, and I feel like when there is light, it's usually her pale skin, and it's, like, kind of too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... We're saying it's terrible looking, but we mean that it's effective at making itself look purposefully 
horrible and terrible place to live. So awesome job, Gilbert Taylor. And I guess Polanski's for directing. <laughs> I sure. Wanna... I mean, I guess he was involved. Like, <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Um, but you know what this film did also do in regards to the protagonist? It made a genre of film, which is the girl with the problem genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the name. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that an actual recognized sort of category of film? It's, from what I can tell, yes. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> um, whether or not it's really widely called that, I, I don't know. But the biggest example that I kept finding was the Black Swan mm. in regards to that like specific naming. Black Swan and then this one were the two that kept popping up. So there are definitely at least some people that recognize it as such. So it's where you have... Presumably a uh, central character who is a girl and has some sort of psychological um, affect or yes. something going on. And just to be completely transparent, uh, all this information is from an article written by Greg Quick titled 50 Years Ago, Repulsion Pioneered a New Genre of Gendered Horror. So, um, again, this is where the information's from, and it does appear, based on what he's saying, that there is a genre, even if it's not intentional, that does exist. So, like Lauren just said, there's psychological films, and, you know, usually the settings are just kind of gross. They're dilapidated, falling apart, places you wouldn't want to be, but they're also claustrophobic, like you're living in them. So this is a film that perfectly encapsulates it, and that's how it was built. And the phrase, Girl of the Problem film, comes from Roman Plansky himself. Uh, in an interview, he was, when he was asked about the film and the character, he just said, she's a girl with a problem. Like, that's it. <laughs> okay. Sure, Roman. Yeah. He's not wrong. He's. <laughs> Where are the men with the problem genres? I know. The article, you actually... Is that every other film? No, I'm kidding. That's, kind of... <laughs> that's too much. I think this Whoa. kind of I'm is one. I'm kidding. <laughs> Whoa. No. We're I'm going... not the... Radical. <laughs> uh, they did kind of bring that up in the article uh, using Stanley Kubrick's film, um, are you talking about The Shining? Yeah, I just kind of yeah. said Stanley Kubrick's film. Just his film. one film you know that, that he one. did, you know. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Did he do any others? Not really. No. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Who's Stanley Kubrick? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, appar- apparently that's different. Okay. Yeah. Well, I feel like the difference is w- between that film specifically and films like Repulsion and Black Swan is that the film centers on, like, the woman's psychological state specifically and it all sort of comes through her point of view whereas The Shining is is from you know Jack's point of view but it's not there's other things as well there's the, there's scenes with just the wife and Danny there's scenes with you know other characters that aren't just him that's true that's uh, maybe I'd not say another same. girl with a problem film is probably everyone's favorite LGBT icon the Babadook <laughs> Well, then that bring, that kind of muddies the argument because she also interacts pretty heavily with other characters. But, but I, mm, I don't but know. she still has. Because... But the Babadook is still an externalization of her own psychoses. I throughout think that, the film. that might be more of like a magical realism, or like like because it does feel like I don't know the Babadook is kind of still real. Like it's not just there's a part of it that yeah. affects her son, not just her. I don't know. I could see There's that. There's an argument, I think, to be made for that, though. Hmm. Interesting. Look, anyway. We're not film theorists. <laughs> no. We're just some people on a podcast <laughs> trying our best. But I think it's fair to say that these types of films do manifest 
pretty regularly. We see uh, mental health and psych- psychosis issues arising with women far mm-hmm. more than men on film. Um, that's a whole other discussion. That's a about. whole other <laughs> mental health representation. There's some problems with this movie, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, right, let's yeah. take it back to Shakespeare and Ophelia from Hamlet. <laughs> if we're going to talk about mental problems and women, and we have of... a long way to go with representing. Yeah, oh yeah, with representing mental health and. I will say, I'm going to get personal on you all very quickly. Um, I have anxiety, and I will say, watching this film, there are a lot of things that she sees, and well, not all of them. Just want to disclose that, um, and the way she acts. Like just little motions that I'm aware of of myself that did make me, it it made it worse for me um, because I think I obviously don't know exactly what she's supposed to have or what exactly is wrong with her, and this is obviously an extreme case. Like most yeah. people aren't like this, and there's a real problem with film showing all women with mental health issues as this extreme level. But for me, there are it was just. Oh, gosh, it made the movie so much worse because ugh, I could relate to some of it. And I don't like that very much. <laughs> but I, I guess um, what, I, what I'm trying to get at with that is just I'm not sure I'd say it's bad representation because I'm not sure it's trying to be a representation of anything. No. <laughs> I don't know. Just Roman Polanski's little dreams. Yeah, I will say I think it is very problematic that I'm sure that he thinks um, it. Knowing the context of Roman Polanski, uh, I get the sense that he's very comfortable making a woman protagonist just kind of going insane and like being normalized in sort of way. Like, oh, of course she'd go insane. I don't know if yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, she's a woman. Yeah, obviously. It happens to women. Every day. All the time. And they even, just snap. And even drawing back from the whole issue of the misogyny here, there's also this you know, pernicious thought that gets implanted in the movie that you know, mentally ill people are violent. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally ill people yeah. murder people. That's yeah. just what happens. But that's what that's what movies get made about because that's what people want to go see. They want to see somebody crap. Well, not not everyone, but that's the sensational story that you can tell with that. It's not at all representative of the majority of people who are suffering, but yeah. Plus, I mean... Who wants to think about a not mentally ill person, a neurotypical person doing awful, terrible things? Then I might relate to it as your straight white male cipher <laughs> for the audience here. Oh, no, couldn't have it. This movie's for you. <laughs> I, um, I something it. else I wanted to touch on within this genre that is supposedly a big deal is eyes. And I think that's really interesting because the entire, like, first minute, minute and a half, even like two to three minutes. It's a long opening sequence. It's just an extreme close-up of Carol's eyes as they shift rapidly back and forth. And the meaning behind eyes is just that like you're seeing everything just right from their perspective, from the protagonist's perspective. And it's meant to be just unsettling. And I think that's interesting because the close-ups usually are very, at least on her eyes throughout the film, or very close to them. So, yeah. yeah. It is It is interesting. She, The actress herself has, like, very big eyes. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, it, the cinematography does work to try and um, highlight that. 
And yeah, I think it just ends. It just adds to the like creepy sense that there's something else going on that you can't. You can even in um, so the the film's closing shot is um, also uh, it zooms in on a photograph of Carol. Yeah, and it zooms in on her face and her eyes, and that that photograph is also present at the beginning of the film, and it's like nothing has changed. You still don't really understand what. I mean, you kind of understand what's going on in her head, but. Not completely, and I think that's where a lot of the um, sort of discomfort comes from. Yeah. Right. It's that big disconnect because a lot of the other shots of her eyes throughout the film are when Carol has this habit of just kind of staring off into space, like she's not there in the present moment. And during a lot of those shots, we just see Carol just looking off into space, and there's this huge disconnect between these big, large eyes just not interacting, not taking in anything from what's around them. And that just adds a whole new level of discomfort. Yeah, it's very creepy. I think we keep using the same words like unsettling, (laughs) discomfort, and every aspect of this film conveys that very well. Uh, So another visual aspect of the film that I think is also really creepy, uh, but done really well, especially considering the budget. You know the hand scenes? Yes, I was going to bring that up. Aren't the, That's... Okay, what's the best way to describe them? So sometimes in this narrow hallway, I think there are two instances specifically. Carol will be pressed against a wall and just these hands will come from inside, like the wall and just break out of the yeah, wall. They'll like come out from the wall and grab her yeah. and grip her and she'll be flailing and the it's, music goes crazy. Oh yeah. It's so much string string. <laughs> I know. It's it's really imagine the shower scene in Psycho, but it it's like it's higher pitched and it's just it keeps like, going for a minute. Yeah. Right. And it's it's a it's quite a long yeah, yeah shot as well. Right. It's like the halls in the original Beauty and the Beast film they've got hands that are holding (laughs) torches except just think about that in the most horrific way possible why would you ruin that movie why would you bring that here no i didn't bring that here polanski brought it here (laughs) i feel like we can blame anything yeah we'll just give that to him another thing that he's done that's terrible Another practical effect that I thought was really cool, and it also involves the wall. There's a lot going on with this wall. She's, like, pressed against it, and all of a sudden, there's an imprint in the wall. It's oh, like, yeah. It's like clay. Mm. I don't know what to call it. It was It was kind of like a hand shape, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was something sort of, like, pressing out against her. Yeah, it's weird. The walls were such an interesting aspect of this film, which is not a sentence you get to say about many films. <laughs> no. Because they're walls. But, um... Yeah, and then we also had the cracks. So mm-hmm. at certain points of the film, um, Carol would just sort of be like hanging out near a wall because she's in her apartment and it would just crack, like come apart. And yeah. you could see the, um, uh, what is it? The Anyway, like parts of the wall would sort of drift off as it did that. And it was just, it was so jarring and there would just be sort of a a, a moment of like insane, like a insane sound effect. Mm-hmm. And it it just, I don't know. Just when you weren't expecting it. And the most gripping thing about that for me that I noticed was the space in between the walls. It's not like we don't see wooden studs and piping or insulation between the cracks in the walls. There's just it almost looks like viscera 
like there's something alive, like the wall itself yeah. is alive. It's not like super detailed or anything, but it's just this texture that you don't really expect underneath a wall. <laughs> and it just kind of adds to the horror of the situation. Yeah. It's like there's no structure underneath. It's just whatever goes. It's kind of like her own foundations are breaking. Mm -hmm. I hate myself for saying that. <laughs> uh, there is one more like part with a wall that I wanted to bring up. It's not necessarily a practical effect, but it is a a camera effect that they're using that just throws me off every time I see it. She, there's one point, again, she's pressed against the wall, as seems to happen when these moments go crazy. Um, and she's like inching towards the bathroom and the body's in there at that point. And as she gets closer, the camera will pull back really quickly and then go forward onto her face so it gives this like this almost warp effect if that makes sense it's so unearthly and just i don't know what the deal is with the wall and why everything weird happens at the wall <laughs> I, I guess the setting is just an apartment so you have to be creative with it mm -hmm. i don't know i mean there's also the shot where she's laying on her back in her bed and we get the camera right next to her left ear mm -hmm. and through this effect we just see the ceiling go from really far above her to yeah. just almost with her face pressed up against it while she doesn't move at all and it's just very unsettling there's that word again unsettling <laughs> we should have made a word bank and just chosen it's a uh... unsettling <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah, don't get settled before you watch this don't. film because it will just unsettle you. You'll have wasted yeah. all that time. This is not bedtime viewing. <laughs> I mean, I watched it before bed the first uh, second time, I guess. But, you know, I'm okay, I guess. <laughs> so far. <laughs> uh, really briefly, too, before we jump into Roman Polanski himself, I do want to talk about the sound a little more. And I know we touched on it a bit, but I've watched this a few times now and... The birds really bother me. It's like every little sound, ambient noise that's normal in everyday life is just unnatural in this scenario. It's like, unbearable. I hate it. It's like everything else is so quiet except these like high-pitched birds. Or like there's one instance where there's like a child shouting. There's like church bells. Just something that disrupts the flow, the silence that's happening in the apartment. The clock the drives spoon. me insane. Oh, the clock is... I can't do it. Oh, man. So the ticking clock is another, like, sort of motif that comes back in again mm -hmm. and again. Um, again and again, sorry. Just like the decaying um, meat that she leaves out. Um, I think another one, like, another thing that is done really well with sound is... So there's a lot of repeated sound mm -hmm. um motifs as well so at the beginning we get those guys who are clacking the spoons they're playing <laughs> the spoons in the street and at, at first you're like oh okay that's fun like all right and then i think it's just after or just before she killed one of the men i'm mm -hmm. not exactly sure but you hear it again outside the apartment and it's it's a very different effect and the same thing with when she was walking um at the very beginning of the film she was sort of walking around the streets and you hear like a sort of upbeat drums and then you hear the same tune later on, and it's sort of just before she started her the the real like roller coaster of her um, mental state, and it just it's so cra this the drums are so much louder and forceful and it ma and faster and it makes you very uncomfortable. So I think it's interesting how those he's played with those sound changes as well as the visual changes. Yeah, absolutely. 
a lot of the transitions when we go from like an interior shot to an exterior shot, a lot of the time that exterior shot will start with this really loud sound of like a truck passing by in front mm -hmm. of the camera. And it just, it's really jarring and I'm not gonna say unsettling. There you go, well on. <laughs> we did it. Uh, about sound too, the absence of sound in a lot of yeah. scenes is, it's really, effective at what it does because when you have silence and then you just have suddenly like the spoons clacking or the clock starts going just it makes you feel so just uncomfortable <laughs> I know I'm using the same words but it's so true though but it, especially with like those pans and there's, yeah. there's no sound and you're just watching to see what is going to appear on screen in front of you and you don't know if it's going to be like the dead body or if she's going to be playing with the razor that she's had since the beginning of the movie. So I think that adds to it as well. Yep. Yep. Good job, sound department. <laughs> but you know who didn't do a good job in life? Roman Polanski. No. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about Roman just a little bit. So Roman Polanski was born in 1933 in Paris to a Jewish family, and he moved to Poland in 1937. And if you know anything about world history, 1930s, late 1930s were not the time to move to Poland. So Nazi Germany invaded, and his family was trapped in the Krakow ghetto, and his parents were actually taken away in the raids. So to survive the Holocaust, he took an adoptive identity as a Catholic child and moved into various foster homes throughout his childhood. But what is a really interesting thing that I learned about Roman Polanski is that his love for filmmaking actually stems from Nazi propaganda films. He would, against you know the advice of the people he was staying with, would see projections of Nazi propaganda films and watch them, and that medium just really attracted him. So I just thought that was very interesting, the very people that he's in fear of and hiding from are the ones that inspired him to make, be a movie maker. So he did go to film school at the National Film School in Lodz, Poland. Uh, and at the school, he was required to make a ton of short films of different themes and everything. But a lot of the things that he made are very similar to the themes that are shown in the, his more current films. So we see a lot of voyeurism, singular tight shots and settings and claustrophobia. So even in the beginning parts of his filmmaking career, he was, he was already adopting his style. His first film, Knife in the Water, is Polanski's de debut feature film. And again, we see Polanski's style showing because everything accumulates in a stressful situation between three people and one ends up thinking they kill another one. Also, there's a lot of sexual tension in that movie as well. So... Yeah, he he definitely has a uh, he has a history of sexual violence in his films and just violence in general. Right, uh, and at this point, as far as we know, it's it's just in his films. As far as we know, <laughs> at this point in his history, but. For his first film, he was nominated for a Best Foreign Language at the Academy Awards in 1963. So even his first oh. film, he's like winning awards and stuff. What the heck? So he moved to the U.S. in 1968, and he married Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was killed by the Manson family in 1969. If you can't tell, his life is just surrounded by violence and just 
terrible abuses. And he's really showcasing these things that happened to him in his life in his films. That's where a lot of the violence seems to stem from. Of course, this is me psychoanalyzing the situation, but I think the correlation's fairly apparent. And then he went on to make Chinatown in 1974, and that was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. And this is where we have to stop talking about him as a person and talk about the thing he did. Because after Chinatown, it came out that Roman Polanski might just be a sex offender. Even worse, actually. Yeah. Well, he says it himself that he did. Yep. Yeah, it's not even a might. I think he had a... um, a biography and he wrote he wrote about what happened but I think you're gonna go on with that oh sure I guess I can go ahead (laughs) I'll tell you go for it let me tell you kids so there is a young girl at the time she was only 13 and her name was Samantha Gailey but she changed her name to Gamer later um And she was told by Polanski that, you know, let's do a photo shoot. So they went to Jack Nicholson's house because Nicholson wasn't there. He was on vacation, I believe, shooting somewhere. Or He was skiing. He was skiing. And he's just a great guy. He's like, sure, here's (laughs) my house. Yeah, I bet it's a great house. Yeah. It'll be great. But it sadly wasn't great because he he abused this poor girl. Um, In her testimony against Polanski, she said that he tried to give her alcohol and a Quaalude pill. And that she was sexually assaulted by Polanski. What's so baffling about this case is that, like Lauren said, he doesn't deny it. He he said that he did have sex with her, but don't worry, it was consensual. That's his take on it. Well, the problem with that, ladies and gentlemen, is that this was a 13-year-old child. There is no consent. So I fail to see how that makes mm-hmm. any difference. Yeah. Yeah, you can't, not when she's 13. And the interesting thing about um, what's to come is that since then, more people, more women have come out and Mm -hmm. said that he, Roman Polanski, did a similar thing to me when I was young. Um, So they all are about 15, 16, around that age. Um, And he, one of the um, girls who came out said that she was a child model and he... Um, asked her to come uh, onto, a, I think it was a deserted beach for some modeling, had her remove her clothes, and then he molested her. And that seemed to be sort of a similar pattern that a lot of that these girls are saying happened. Like, he wanted to cast me in a movie, and then he got me alone, and then that happened. It's terrible. Yeah. It's absolutely horrific. And the fact that he just doesn't seem to have much remorse at all for what he's done is awful. He was indicted on six counts of felony. He only pleaded guilty to the one, and that was unlawful sex with a minor. Um, So when he was found guilty, they sentenced him to a 90-day evaluation, but he was released in 42 days into his sentence. And I I think the reason for that was he told the judge that he had a movie to finish. Because, of course. Because he said, like, 400 people are relying on me for their jobs. And so that they they're like, okay, we'll postpone it. I guess you only have to ask or have a movie yeah. to make. Just got to be famous. Of course. Well, he fled the country before his sentencing in 1978, and he had a dual citizenship in Poland and France. And when he went to France, he could not be extradited because France does not allow for extradition of his citizens. So his lawyers have been fighting to lift this warrant that has been made that he cannot come back here. He has tried to enter the U.S. again, and every time 
they've said, no, you need, if you come back here, you need to be tried. And he hasn't come back. So mm-hmm. that's where we're at with Roman Polanski. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, there are, yeah, I think so. What happened was there's another, the the people, I just sort of wanted to give out the names of the people who've also. Please do. Um, so in 2010, Charlotte Lewis um, said when she was young, he took advantage of her. And she's lived with the effects of his behavior ever since. Um, Robin M. in 2017, um, someone known by Langer when she was 15, and then somebody called uh, Barnard, known by Barnard. And I think one of the interesting things is the girl that he, the 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 case that he was trialed for, um, the girl involved in that has said that she doesn't want him to come back. She doesn't want to deal with it mm-hmm. because it's caused so much like lifelong trauma to her. So um, she, I think she said something along the lines of, it feels like it's been a case against him and myself, a trial against him and myself because of all of the trauma she's had. And the big media circus around that time, especially since it was following his, the death of his wife. And it's hard to judge her decision to, or not decision, it doesn't matter what she thinks. Right. If he comes back, he'll be tried. Uh, but I met, she was harassed extensively after she came out. This was a young child, and there were actual real adults harassing this child, calling her a liar and slut and all these terrible things because she came out and spoke out against this rich, just prevalent man in the industry. And that's horrific. And just in case you thought that we were just going to ruin how you thought of Roman Polanski for this episode, uh, in 2009, there were a number of people in the film industry mm-hmm. who signed a petition. There's 138 celebrities. Yeah. Saying they want Roman Polanski released. They want him to be free. Uh, of course, on Wikipedia, the first name on that list is Woody Allen. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know why. Uh. But other names are Martin Scorsese, Darren Aronofsky, David Lynch, Wes Anderson, uh, Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, Terry Gilliam, Alejandro Gonzalez, Inaritu. Just no. (laughs) No. That might be the most terrifying part, honestly. Yeah. 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 Um, There have been some people who have said who have come out since that 2009 petition, so almost 10 years ago, who have said, you know what, I I kind of regret signing that. You know, people like Natalie Portman. So kudos to the people her. who have said, you know, that was a mistake. Uh, it's a pretty big mistake, I have to say. I think one of the interesting things is how we look at this now, 10 years on, or, well, not 10 years on for the movie, but how we look at this now compared to when the movie was made and when these allegations all came out. Mm -hmm. I think it's really, really interesting to try and... I don't know if it's appropriate to judge this in a contemporary setting. Um, The movie itself, not um, uh, not the situation surrounding it. But I think it's very interesting to look at the content of the films that Polanski has made and from this sort of lens that we've had from the last five years in the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. I don't know what we can glean from that. but Well, regarding the Me Too movement, um, some, even just a tiny amount of justice did happen. It did pervade in some form. So in 2018, Roman Polanski, along with Bill Cosby, 
was expelled from the U.S. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And the board made a statement saying, the board continues to encourage ethical standards that require members to uphold the Academy's values of respect for human dignity. So at least there is an Academy out there that says this is not acceptable. And in the 91-year history of this Academy, only four people have been expelled. Roman Polanski, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, and Carmine Caridi, who uh, I guess he was expelled for some copyright infringement. Yeah, <laughs> not good either. No, not good. <laughs> the other's less good, but... Yeah. Know. Yeah. But so it is interesting to see how different people were taking Roman Polanski. It seems like a lot of filmmakers rally behind him, um, whereas... At least one academy says no. It just makes you wonder what he stands for to the people that do support him. Is it a fear of being accused yourself of a crime? Or is are we saying that his contributions to film outweigh any negative thing he's done? I don't know. It's a very interesting area that I think we're all sort of approaching as a society to talk about how do we treat the works of an artist and how do we treat the artists themselves? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know that we fully know the answer to that. I don't know if that is always, if it's always, I mean, I feel that it's always appropriate to sort of look at the individual situations because you can't have one rule that applies across the board. What do you think? I think it's, I Similarly, think it's important to examine each film and each filmmaker on an individual basis and to try to come to understand who they were, what they did, and why. But I don't think that just understanding why someone does a thing makes it okay at the same time. Mm-hmm. I'm, there's, the, yeah, I agree. I, I'm not going to say this is a, like Repulsion, for example, is a bad film. It's not. It's, a, it's fantastic. And I don't think anybody would, I mean, you know, but I don't know how to feel. This is the classic Chris Brown dilemma. <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> and is. And I don't think we've dealt with that in a very certain terms either. No. Like, he's still out there making music. Louis C.K. is still making, uh, is still doing comedy. How do we Plansky's still it? making movies. Yeah, and being celebrated for it. I think that for me, that's where I have the real problem is them being celebrated for it because Mm -hmm. if you were to apply this situation to somebody who had a different occupation like say they were a construction worker and maybe they had they had an incident like this and then they had to move jobs they can still continue making you know they can still continue their life as a construction worker when you're in the media or when you're a public figure it's very difficult when you're relying on your public image once that's shattered to continue working um sometimes like rightfully so but do we want to tear that person down completely? Like Louis C.K., for example, do we say we never want to see com- you doing comedy again? Because then does he have to go find something else to do? Or I don't know the answer to that. There is no good answer. Yeah. I think that's the right answer. There just isn't a good answer for what to do with these people. Another question that arises is just what? how do we deal with liking works made by bad people? Uh, can we separate the creator from the content they've made? I think you can. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, I'm still going to enjoy Kevin Spacey's performance in House of Cards. <laughs> um, but just because Kevin Spacey has done some extremely questionable things doesn't mean I can't 
look at the beautiful set design mm-hmm. or the work of all the other people that went into it, and particularly with film and TV because it is such a collaborative process, I think that it's very important to be aware of the um, behavior of people if you're choosing to go out and celebrate them and be like, oh, this person's such a great actor or so talented. I think it's important to be aware of that. But I think when it comes to the work itself, I don't think there's a problem with enjoying it. I personally don't think there is a problem with enjoying a work or someone's filmography. But to me, whenever something like this happens, I personally find myself just unable to monetarily support their work after this, after revelations like this come to light. Like, I'm ne- I'm never going to buy tickets to a Louis C.K. concert or, th- yeah, comedians put on concerts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't really see myself buying any Kevin Spacey films or any Bill Cosby albums that he made during his stand-up years. For me, I just feel like I can personally live without it. I can still watch films like Repulsion and say this was, you know, made by a someone who had a mastery of their craft, but they used that mastery to infuse images of sexual violence that I don't even I don't know how Polanski went about orchestrating those scenes, what he said to the people involved, any of that, but knowing the fact that later on information would come to light that Polanski was a violent, you know, sexual criminal, that that to me just kind of spoils the film in one way, but it also kind of makes it more of an interesting look into, you know, I find much more value in the film as a way to get inside of Roman Polanski's head and not necessarily to enjoy it, you know. Like I would Joe Average blockbuster at the AMC. It definitely makes for a more interesting viewing when you know his background. Mm-hmm. I think what's very interesting about Roman Polanski's films is that you can see him very clearly uh, putting an extension of himself into his films. Uh, probably not intentionally. I don't think he wants to convey voyeurism or sexual deviancy about himself in his films. But I think whether we like it or not... Uh, there is, I think you can absolutely separate the work in terms of you can like something, but acknowledge it's terrible. But I don't think it's possible to separate the creator from their work necessarily because it, they're always going to be in it. And that I'm not advocating in any form for censorship. I think we should be watching these films and I think we should be talking about them. But I think it's important that we talk about the people that made them. And we have to be careful that we don't celebrate them. I find it personally unacceptable that Polanski has still been asked to be on juries for awards. I think that's where a line is crossed. There's there's a difference between looking at his work critically and even liking and watching it recreationally, but giving him a platform after he's done these terrible things he's admitted to, that's where I think the problem is. But I think you guys made really good points. So yeah, this has been a lot obviously. Uh, it's a very serious subject, and Roman Polanski is terribly controversial, and it's it's hard to look at his films because he is an incredible filmmaker. Uh, if you're studying film in any capacity, you're going to have to watch Polanski, but let's not forget what he's done. Is there any rap, like any final thoughts you guys have on the film or Polanski himself? Um, 
I think that what stood out most to me for the film um, at the very end. So we've seen this woman be scared of men her entire through the entire movie, and at the very end, we have the scene where um, her sister's. Um, I mean, the pers- the man that her sister is having an affair with comes up and tries to help her because she's lying on the floor, and I just felt I like it freaked me out a little bit. I was like, "Don't touch her." I think that was just. A very it just showed how powerful that movie was because I didn't want any men to be around her. Some of her fear had sort of been infused into myself, and that surprised me a lot. But I think that does go to show um, how powerful it was. Yeah. Yeah. That just from your comment, I'm having flashbacks to that viral Gillette video mm-hmm. of you know men doing bad things, and then in the end we see you know some men stepping up and actually helping to improve a situation. Yeah. And oh, so yeah. we get this entire film where we're, we feel this intense dislike and this intense feeling towards men who are just being awful to this woman, invading her space and her sense of privacy and agency and all of that grossness. And then we finally have one person who is, steps in and actually crosses the threshold of gawking onlookers to actually affect some positive change. Absolutely. There's a lot of layers to this film, and the best I can tell anybody listening is that you probably should check it out. Um, We've been talking about it quite a bit, but there's so many scenes that we didn't mention here that are really impactful, and it's going to, the movie's going to leave you with something. What that something is, it's going to be different for every person, but for me, what Lauren said, it was, I you don't you don't want any men like touching this girl. It does, it's so effective. Um, just go watch it. Well, we have to wrap up here today. So I'm your host Emily Rubin, and with me today I have Lauren DiLorenzo and Jeremy Rogers. Thank you so much for listening. You can read all of our content at bitebsu.com and the Ball State Daily. Be sure to follow us on social media at bitebsu on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time on Input Two. You just did that.